listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 90. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with sailor Randall Reeves, who shares his journey in completing the figure eight voyage and the mindset it takes to take on the ocean. This record-breaking feat consisted of sailing five oceans, completing two circumnavigations while solo all in one year. Randall shares his love and connection with the sea and what it truly means to honor our big blue ocean. Hey, Randall, how are you? Good, Grant. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your show. Awesome, man. I am I'm really excited to have you on my show. I know I've been trying to get you on my show, but it's hard to get you on my show when you've been at sea for uh, a year to two years. So um, really excited to talk about your voyage, the, the figure eight voyage, cool. and just the mindset behind it, the planning, the preparation, and just your overall journey. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Great. Uh, me too. Awesome. Well, before we get into that and get all the details, I want to talk about mental toughness, which is um, a topic that I love to talk about. And I always start off all my shows uh, with this question. So when you think about mental toughness, what does mentally tough mean to you? Uh, I immediately went to the word persistence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Try, try again. Um, I have had the opportunity uh, on this particular voyage, the figure eight voyage of failing rather profoundly and had to kind of get up and go again. And so mental toughness to me is that ability, uh, that requirement to when you fail to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, inhale and start again. Beautiful. You know, and we, we talk a lot about how to be successful, you have to have a relationship with failure and, you know, how you respond to failure is everything. So is that true with, I mean, you want to limit your failures at sea, but you know, is that something that's, that's true for you, for you to be successful, to be a successful sail, sailor, do you have to learn how to deal with the failures? Oh, for sure. I mean, in truth, when you're at sea, for as long as I had been at sea, so the figure eight voyage, the second attempt was 306 days at sea, you just have lots and lots of opportunity to screw things up and learn from your mistakes, but screw things up again. And so, yeah, absolutely. Your ability to kind of come back from that is, is, is really important. There's just too much ocean. It's too big and too strong for you to be successful every time you go up on deck. Right, exactly. Well, and I, I know I can only imagine how many times you had to be mentally tough out on the ocean. But, you know, when you look back at your, your whole experience at sea, is there a specific time? that where you had to be mentally tough? Oh, for sure. Um, so this, I, I sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge this last October 19 at the end of my successful second attempt at the figure eight voyage. But the first attempt was pretty dramatic and pretty, pretty drastically bad. I, for example, was down off Cape Horn when I lost both of my automatic steering devices and I had to hand steer for a week at 56 degrees south, which is right off Cape Horn, essentially, it's essentially like being on the air, a peak of Everest for a week and trying to get off. And so there was a there was a lot of time there where I had to force myself to keep going. It's temperatures are near freezing. You're by yourself. You're in a part of the world where there just isn't anybody there to help you, even if they could. 
So if you want to get home, if you want to get back, you have to get dressed, get up on deck and start steering again. So I was 12 to 18 hours a day steering uh, the boat. Now, that may not sound like much to a non-sailor, but my boat is, is a big boat, 45 feet long. And it, it, I have it steered by autopilot or what we call wind vane all of the time. So in my first big storm of the first try of the figure eight, both of my automatic steering devices got knocked out. Had to hand steer into Ushuaia, which is the most southerly town in the world for repairs. It just, it really, it took a lot. Uh, it was frightening. It was cold. I was drained. I'd come down below and, and cook a meal that was like three or four times the normal size just because I was so physically drained. And it was a week of it, a week of, of doing that. It really, it really, it was, it was probably the most trying week of the entire two years of the figure eight, two attempts. Wow. And I can only imagine how mentally tough you had to get through that period. But what do you, what do you think was the, the main, you know, factor or attribute that actually, you know, through your mental toughness, like what got you through to keep on moving and keep <laughs> on going? Uh, well, the thing about, uh, long distance sailing is that you've got to keep going if you want to get home. In a certain sense, survival and survivalist activities are easy because if you don't continue on, you don't make it. And so the incentive uh, is to stay alive. And the incentive is quite easy to get to. Right. Um, uh, you know, I knew if I was going to get home, it was, it was just me. It didn't mean it wasn't challenging, um, but it wasn't hard to say, okay, get up today. You've got nothing else on your calendar but to stay alive. So get focused and, you know, eat that food and get that rest that you need and get back up on that because you've got to be out in this blizzard-type condition for, for as long as there's daylight. So, yeah, mental toughness was a big deal, and, and you access it purely and easily, quite frankly, uh, by saying, hey, I want to I live today. Right. I want to go home. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, before we get into the figure eight voyage uh, and what that entails, I want to go a little bit backwards just to kind of understand you more as your passion for sailing. So, so where did this passion start uh, on just sailing the ocean? Sure. I, my father was a merchant mariner, a skipper for a number of years. And though he'd retired from the sea, by the time I was born, his seafaring stuff was all over the house, sextant uniforms and seafaring manuals and stuff like that. So it was always a part of the family, as it were. And then we bought a sailboat when I was in high school. That was my first sailing experience. But I recall distinctly getting on the boat, going for a sail that first afternoon with Dad. The boat heels over, the wind fills the sails, and that sensation of, oh, well, that's this is what I'm supposed to do, really kind of filled in and I probably sailed, did nothing but sailing for several years thereafter. And I found pretty early that what I liked most was sailing by myself. I think not so much because I'm antisocial, but because I like to do everything. I like to be involved in every aspect of the sailing experience from, you know, from the sailing, the trimming sails, to the steering, to the, to the cooking, to the deciding where we're going to go to the cleaning up to, you know, all of that is a, for me is, is a rich part of the experience and I love all of it. So solo sailing kind of took me pretty quickly. In fact, I used to quote unquote borrow uh, the family boat when dad was out on, you know, out of town on business trips. And I'd, I'd sail from Stockton, which is where we lived at the time down 
down the river to San Francisco Bay by myself down to Antioch. I, I got furthest I got, I believe, was out to the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, tacked back and forth a few times, just dreaming about what it would be like to go out on the big blue ocean. But so that it, it bit me pretty early, the whole long distance bit. And then I, I also had the opportunity to meet in early college. I was a radio anchor for a while, news anchor. And I got to meet a guy named Bernard Motessier, who was the first person to sail around the world nonstop solo. Actually, that's not entirely true. He was a part of the first race around the world. This is back in 1968. Back in 1968, no one had actually sailed around the world nonstop solo before. They were putting people on the moon in 1968. Still no one had actually gone all the way around the planet on a sailboat by himself. Bernard was a part of this uh, this uh, race. There were 13 boats that left the UK in 1968. He actually dropped out. He was winning, we, we think, but he dropped out about two-thirds of the way through. He decided not to go back to Europe. He sailed on around the world another half time, and I think for probably 15, 20 years, held the record of longest solo sails. I met him, interviewed him for my radio station when I was in early college and just was really blown away by his simplicity, his resolve, his survivalist skills. He had a, the simplest boat in the world, but had gone to the most difficult places on the planet with it. And it just really, it bit me really hard. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I was going to save this question, but since we're talking about it, since you're already talking about <laughs> kind of your passion and then being at sea, when you're actually out there by yourself, all by yourself and you're connecting with the ocean, like describe what is, what does that, what does that feel like when you're out there and you're just connecting with the ocean? Uh, now, Grant, that's a really tough question. I'm not sure how to answer that succinctly. Um, for a guy like me, it's like you're connecting, in a certain sense, like you're connecting with yourself. Uh, I, I feel very much in whatever Randall's zone is. That's where his zone happens to live, is out on the big blue sea. It's a, it's a, it's a really alien environment. Everything is moving. The water is moving. The sky is moving. The air is moving. The clouds are moving. The boat is heaving up and down. There is absolutely nothing that your eye can anchor on that is not moving constantly. And yet you kind of have this feeling as a human that you're kind of, you're in the zone. You're a part of this environment. You're doing a perfect dance with it. And it just feels uh, I don't even know the word for it. I was going to say it feels lovely, it feels perfect, it feels, but it just feels like you're in your environment. And not every day, obviously. Uh, uh, being at sea for 306 days in a row right. is challenging, and, <laughs> right. and a lot of it is very difficult. But it's you just I just feel kind of this is where I'm meant to be. I guess that's the best way of of putting it. Absolutely. And you know, uh, you know, we share a, a a common friend, Leah Ditton, who's you know sales as well, uh, in a, in a different, yep. uh, vessel. But, uh, I remember asking a similar question to her about her, you know, what's it like being out, out in the ocean with your connection and, and do you ever get lonely? And she, it was great. Cause she shared with me, she's like, you know what? I actually don't get lonely because when I realize I'm so connected to this beautiful thing called the ocean, I have so many friends yeah. below me. And when I see, yeah the fish and the whales and it's just, I don't, I'm not alone and I don't get scared. It's more comforting. Yeah. I would concur with that. Uh, almost entirely. Uh, I, I've often said that I, I, one of the 
one of the factors at play on a sailboat in particular you know, of, of a certain size. So my boat's pretty big, right? I had to have enough provisions on it for a year and water on it for almost a year. So it's a 45-foot boat, and it weighs a lot. And it's complicated, and there's there's always something to do. So part of the factor of not getting lonely is I'm busy. I've got a lot of work to do to right. keep the boat and self going. But the other factor is, is is a reflection of Leah's. You don't feel alone. So I'm with the boat. I'm with the ocean. I'm with the birds. And I just I feel like I have the kind of companionship that I long for. And so loneliness doesn't really figure into it. That's not to say that I don't enjoy being home. I, I love being home. I love being with my wife. I love the friends that I have here in the city, but it's different when you're out on, on the ocean, you really feel like you're, you're in that place that you were meant to be. Right. Is it fair to say that when you're out there, uh, like you feel the most alive? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. For sure. Awesome. I mean, you know, part of it is that you feel, you know, uh, specifically intrinsically at every moment that anything could happen and, and that could be it. There's, you know, my boat has very, very strong. It has very thick aluminum plate as the hull, but that thick aluminum plate is less than a quarter of an inch thick. And that is what is between me and oblivion, right? right. So you're always that, that hair's breadth away from not making it home. But that also is enlivening, right? You, you, you understand that really, in truth, we all live that way. We just forget. Um, Definitely. Definitely. Well, I, I can't wait to get into this uh, just to, to understand more about the voyage. So can, can you share from your perspective uh, to my listeners what is the figure eight voyage and why did you set sure. out to complete this massive goal? Oh, right. That's two questions. You can yep. only ask one question at a time. Man. <laughs> <laughs> the figure eight voyage. So the best way to envision it is this. Imagine a globe in your head and you're looking right down at the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California. So I, I sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge out to sea at a hard left and sailed all the way down to the bottom of the world, uh, down to the bottom of South America, a place that sailors called Cape Horn made a left-hand turn and made a full circle of the globe at roughly that latitude, all the way around Antarctica, back to Cape Horn again, underneath Cape Horn for a second time, and then all the way up the Atlantic Ocean, essentially until I ran out of ocean, all the way up to 79, no, sorry, that's not right, 74 degrees north uh, between Greenland and Canada, made a hard left turn there into what's called the Northwest Passage, Passage sailed all the way across Canada and Alaska, uh, turned south, sailed down the Bering Sea through the Aleutians, crossed the Gulf of Alaska and the Pacific and home. That's the figure at board. So it was an attempt to sail, to circumnavigate the American continents, both of them, and Antarctica in one season. That's about 40,000 miles, which when your average speed is something on the order of seven miles an hour, is a long, long way. Uh, the biggest challenges there of the figure are its length and the time it takes to sail it. And the fact that when you go to the very bottom of the world, you need to be there in southern summer. And when you sail to the very top of the world, the only time you can ever get through the Arctic is during Arctic summer. So timing and planning and, and, and the intricacies of where will you be at what time 
are really key to the success of the figure eight. So that was your first question. What was your second question? What was uh, what was the the drive or the motivation to complete this this massive? Oh, goal? yeah, I I went to see by myself for the first time in 2010. It happened very late in life, actually. I had a different boat. I made a deal with Joanna, my wife, that I would be gone for a year, that I was going to sail around the Pacific Ocean from San Francisco down to Mexico, Mexico to Hawaii, and then Hawaii back home. And I, I got to Mexico and realized that all the cruisers there were headed to this place I'd never heard of called the Marquesas, which is in French Polynesia where Tahiti and Bora Bora are. And I suddenly realized, oh, man, I could, I could single hand all the way to French Polynesia. That sounded just amazingly exotic. So I propositioned to Joanna when she came down to visit me in La Paz, said, hey, honey, I want to I keep going. I want to sail home via Tahiti. And, and uh, I had re- rehearsed all of my, all of her objections, thought I had them all laid out. She thought about it for a minute. She said, how long will that take? And I said, well, you know, given hurricane seasons and distances and slowness of the boat, it'll take another year. So she, she says, your, your one-year cruise is going to become a two-year cruise? I said, yes. And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, I think you should do that. Uh, and so I did. I sailed uh, 15,000 miles over the course of two years, uh, including uh, trips to Mexico, French Polynesia, back up to Hawaii, Hawaii up to Alaska, all the way up to the glaciers in Alaska, and then back home. And that, I got home and realized, you know what, I really like this. And part of what I really like are the long solo ocean passages. It's a lot of fun to explore the, the, the landed world by water. But for me, it's that, it's that long trek across an ocean that really I enjoy a lot. And I said, Joanne, I'd really like you doing this. Basically, she said, okay, but if you do something, do something really, really large. Well, really large is hard. I mean, people have been doing solo stuff for a long time now. And the best I could come up with was something that hadn't been done before, which was an attempt to link together two high latitude, extreme voyages. One of those is to sail around the Southern Ocean. So the Southern Ocean was was the way goods got from Europe to Asia until we built the Panama Canal. Everybody who sailed went down around Cape Horn. And Cape Horn is, because it sticks so far out and down toward Antarctica, it's just vile. The weather there is incredible and difficult. There's no land. That's the first land that water sees for its entire circuit around the Southern Ocean. No land gets in the way of the sea, so the seas are huge. And it's cold. And it's considered to be the Mount Everest of sailing, sailing around the Southern Ocean. So what if I thought, what if you could link that, connect that very difficult voyage with another historic voyage called the Northwest Passage, which is over the top of Canada, Alaska. It's that that passage that links, again, Europe and Asia, a shorter route than down around Cape Horn, but a route that has only recently been open enough to be passable by small boats. What if you could put those two routes into one kind of mega uh, mega ocean voyage for a small boat. So that was the idea. No one had ever done it before. It was just, it seemed crazy to even conceptualize it because of the distances involved. Usually if you sail around the world by the Southern Ocean, say you leave France on one of those big races with ND Globe or the Volvo Challenge, you go all the way down around and come back home. You've, you've sailed 25,000 miles. That's a long ways. 
but the figure eight is almost 40,000 miles. So, you know, it's like 50% plus more in terms of length. And I'm trying to do it all within a 12 month period, or at least a roughly 12 month period. So a huge challenge. And once I got it down on paper, I'd studied it quite a, quite a, quite a long time, actually. Once I got it down and figured the mileage was doable, then it's like, yeah, I, you know, I can do this. Wow. <laughs> like if, if, and if I, if I can do this, I, I've got to do this. I've got to at least give it a shot. Was there a lot of people through, like, as you were thinking about this and, and obviously planning, where people literally going, "Dude, this is this is really crazy." And did that ever affect yes. kind of your thought process? Did you ever question or check yourself? Yeah, for sure. Oh, for sure. I remember talking to some of my uh, contemporaries, male friends of mine, who who said, hey, this is just dumb. This is just a midlife crisis. Just go home, mow the lawn. It'll pass, right? Don't, don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. But yeah, no, there were a lot of people who, who said, this is nuts. And then there were the hard, hardcore sailors who had done chunks of that, you know, had done the Southern Ocean bit or who had done the Arctic, who would say, yeah, you know what? You, I bet, yeah, I bet that could be done. No one was sure I could do it, but but yeah, they thought it was at least physically possible. Well, and it seems like doing something like that, I mean, planning a, a voyage like this, you have to have a support system. And, and your wife's obviously, you know, after some thought was like, yep, you better do it. And if you're going to do it, do it big. <laughs> right. But like, yeah. how important is it to have a support system in place to accomplish something like this? Uh, huge. And, and, and the support system doesn't necessarily need to be a lot of people. In my case, at the very beginning, for the first few years, my support system was one other person, my wife, who is, I like to call her my, uh, my incentive. She's the person who, who, I'm the dreamer, right? I come up with the big, crazy idea, and she's the one who says over and over, I think you can do it. I'm sure you can do it. Just keep going at it. Just keep going at it. And that I, I, I doubt highly I would have gotten past the first year of planning without her saying, yes, I think you can do it. Of course, as the project matured, a lot of other people were involved. I remember after I'd been home for a week or so when I put together on the blog, a thank you to all of the people who had been involved in the figure eight. And it was hundreds of people uh, from the people who donated to the GoFundMe campaigns that helped me with the the, the satellite technology I had to buy, which is usually expensive, to the, the people who helped me out when I crash-landed on the first attempt. I crash-landed twice, once in Ushuaia and once in Hobart, Tasmania, which is an island just south of Australia. Uh, and I got just the most amazing, generous help from all, all kinds of people all, all along the way. But really, the, the impetus, the drive, the, the first person to kind of kick me out of the house, as it were, was, was my wife. And uh, she's the one who, who really deserves the most credit for helping me along. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, real quick, when you go back to the first attempt, what did you do differently when you, when you went back out in the ocean for the second attempt? So it's, yeah, it's difficult to describe without getting really technical, Got it. but I, what happened essentially during the first attempt was that I got bit really hard by some really big storms. So off the coast of Chile, about 500 miles west of, of Cape Horn, the boat was thrown down and, and 
both of the autopilot devices that I use, one which is electronic and one which is mechanical, both of them died within a couple of days. Those were, in a certain limited degree, just kind of bad luck. Uh, Storm management is a really tricky business, and there are all kinds of opinions about how it should be done. But in my particular case, during this storm and during the latter storm, so jumping ahead two months after the first incident that put me in Dushwaya for repairs, two months later, I'm in the Indian Ocean. I'm between South Africa and Australia, way down at about 47 degrees south. And another big storm comes along. In this case, the waves were so large. Like, we're talking like three-story houses. And they're like, I don't know what surfers call this, but the whole wave is closing out. The whole wave is crashing. And imagine a three-story house coming at you, and it's crashing. And it doesn't matter how big your boat is. It's, wow. it's going to have a hard time with that. And so in that particular uh, gale, the boat had been thrown down three times. I just couldn't figure out how to position the boat in the wave such that the wave didn't just overmaster the boat entirely. And then the third knockdown, by the way, a knockdown means that the sailboat is all the way over at least 90 degrees and the mast is in the water. That's how far the boat is pushed over. Wow. On the third knockdown, the wave actually picked at the top of the wave, the wave picked up the boat and threw it. So my boat weighs 20 tons, right? It's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of boat. It was actually thrown off the top of the wave down to the bottom of the wave. And it landed so hard, kind of did this belly flop on its side, that it broke a window, tiny window, maybe one foot by two feet, just push, push punched it out. And so I've got green water flooding the boat. It's right above the navigation station. So all the electronics are almost immediately fried. By the boat, time the boat writes itself, I've got 100 gallons of plus water in the boat. I've got a big hole. I can now hear the gale. I can now see it through the window. It was a really big problem. I was I was in a dire straits there for quite a while. But by that time, I was at the end of the gale. So not to get too technical, but what the, the challenge that I had and that I wasn't doing well was enabling the boat to steer itself well at the end of the storm. What happens in big storms at sea is that the wind, wind is by definition air that's falling. And so falling air, even though it builds up big seas, it's also holding them down because the wind is falling down onto the ocean top. And as the wind starts to let up, the seas, which no longer have this thing holding them down, start to stack up really high. So you usually get your biggest seas. Even though the wind is less, you get the biggest seas in the last third of the storm. And I wasn't flying enough sail to let the boat steer itself through that really, really confusing time in both cases. Uh, so that was what I did differently in the, in the, in the second figure eight relative to storm management was fly a lot of sail, go as fast as you can. It's way counterintuitive. You want to slow the boat. Your, your, your body says, slow down, slow the boat down, slow does the safety. And in, in and matter of fact, you want to go as fast as possible. Uh, give the boat ability to correct ability to steer and, so it was overcoming that that kind of emotional well, fear, really. The uh, big waves, yeah, <laughs> they just are never not. They're just never not scary. Um, doesn't matter how many times you've seen them. And so overcoming the fear that says slow down, slow down, slow down, uh, and saying no, we've got to go faster. It looks dangerous, but it isn't. Go faster. Uh, that was what I. That was the big kind of the mental shift between the first and the second figure eight voyage. Wow, man, you just took me right there. That that whole. That you just took me there. Um, I can only imagine what it, what you had, what were you by yourself dealing with that, and 
you know, when you think about in the world of um, athletics, still, I think sailing is, you know, it's part of the world of sports. But, you know, when you think about fear, uh, fear of failing, um, you know, just fear itself, a lot of the times, you know, we create the fear, the humans. And so, you know, there's a great acronym for fear called false evidence appearing real. And, and, and I do uh, believe that. Yeah. However, sometimes there's real fear. Like life-threatening <laughs> fear, where there's there yeah. is there yeah. is no false evidence. It is actually really really true, and and you're out of control of it, especially with the wave and the ocean. You're in the effect of the ocean, right? So, you know, when you're dealing with that, and again, this is going to be a kind of a two-part question again. But with fear, how do you <laughs> how do you deal with fear? Because again, bringing our friend uh, Leah Ditton, I mean, she had a great quote that was from the author from uh, Eat, Sleep, Pray. I think is the name of the book. But it was um, fear can sit on the bus, just can't drive. So you, you can have fear there, um, but can't let it drive. But when you're in that situation where it, you're like, your life's in danger, and you're, I'm sure it was a very fearful situation. So, what are you? How do you? How are you dealing with those emotions? And then, how important is it the way that you talk to yourself? Oh, that's 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 good. Uh, I. I like that quote, by the way, that Leah didn't quote. It's very nice. Yep. I think that, to your point, part of the challenge on the ocean, <clears throat> I'm not competing with somebody else who's trained like I have, who may be similar to me in physical size. I'm on the ocean. My competitor is two-fifths of the planet or three-fifths of the planet, right? It's a huge feature <laughs> right, right. on, on our world, and the odds are never even. They just aren't you're always going to lose if you if you try to attack things the wrong way and i i think for me because it is just uh, when you're in big weather and big seas you you know intimately just how vulnerable you and the boat are even though the boat is very very strong the seas are going to be stronger if you screw up too much so again the incentive is there but i think part of it is getting in tune with the boat and knowing that your job as a sailor is really all your all you need to do is figure out the best way for the boat to dance with the seas and if you can do that if you can get, just give the boat the advantage of being in the right position and having the right set of sails and being able to correct when the sea knocks it down because it's going to get knocked down and sometimes many times per hour, just giving it the, the the strength it needs to correct and get back on. That's all you need to do. Sometimes that's really hard because what it means is you got to get your foul weather gear on and you got to go on deck. And by the way, the deck is mostly underwater most of the time. So it, it's a dangerous place to be and it's very frightening, but you, you have to do it because it's your job. You are, as the sailor, essentially, you're in service to the boat. In truth, it, it is a sport for sure. But really, most of the work at sea is being done by the vessel on which I ride. And my job is kind of backstage manager, as you might say. My job is to make sure the boat is fit enough and that the boat is well manned enough and and has enough advantage to to pull through a storm. So I think the focus then is really on, uh, you know, making sure that you do your part of the duty is and, and making sure the boat has the advantage that it has well as you're navigating the ship and finessing it 
Um, would the image, would it be fair to say, is it kind of like uh, a bull rider? Where a bull rider is, it has to kind of move with the bull. And it has to, it, it can't, you're not going to move the bull. You have to kind of learn how to dance with it and yeah. finesse it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like I said, I mean, uh, it, it's really kind of stunning when, when you think how strong water is. It's moving all of the time. It looks like it's incredibly frail, but it, it, it's almost uncompressible stuff. And I've seen photographs of big ships you know, made of steel. My boat's made of aluminum. Steel is 50% stronger. Are these big ships that have been in storms and, and literally, quite literally, the whole bow of the ship has been blown off by water. It's just incredibly strong. You can't win. You can't beat it. You can only move with it. You can only flow with it. And so, yes, it is, that's a very fair analogy. And that's the, that's the biggest challenge. You're out there, right? The, the, one of the biggest differences between, say, you know, my sport and, and, and other sports like, say, running a marathon is I can't, I can't just move to the side of the road and quit. There's no quitting. You don't have an option. You're in this weather. It will take this weather in probably two to three days to pass over you completely. You have to figure out a way for you and the boat to swim with it. That's the only way to survive. So, yeah, that's, that's a big key, key point for sure. Well, a couple more questions here before we sign out. But, you know, when you broke this record sailing around the, the globe 40,000 miles twice solo in one trip, can you, like, describe what did it feel like when you actually, when you knew, like, whether you just completed it or you're, you just know, like, hey, I'm completing this, this feat. How would you describe the feeling? <laughs> I, uh, I had some of my worst weather three days offshore from home. We were overtaken by a big gale coming down from Alaska. So I didn't actually get the feeling of, of completing like, Oh, I can do this until I was within a couple of, couple of days of home. So I was, I think I was gone 376 days total of which 306 days were at sea. And the feeling was pretty remarkable and humbling, quite frankly. I had a vision for what the figure eight would be. I knew it was possible. I knew I could do it because I'd done a lot of sailing by this point. I knew the boat could do it, could do it because it had been to these environments before. But there's a difference, of course, between being able to visualize something and knowing you can do it and then actually pulling it off. And you realize quite profoundly that although it was you and the boat, it also had nothing to do with you. It just was... I, I remember sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge after this was for me a monumental task, thinking, well, that was, you know, that was, that was kind of easy, actually. I don't know if I could do that again. <laughs> because it just, it, it all becomes part of a flow, and when things are flowing, it, it just doesn't feel like there's any conflict. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience coming home, for sure. I bet. Well, and when you're out at sea for, what, almost a year, over a year, how was it transitioning back to land or quote unquote normal life? Yeah, I thought I had that figured out, right? I've gone, gone and come back, gone and come back. I've done that a bit, but it, this has been a challenging reentry. There were times I'm told this actually by people who were following me. There were times when I was closer to people on the space station at sea than I was to anyone on land. And that 
that distance, that having gone through two of the most challenging passages that we have yet discovered as humans, having done two of them in one year, having seen the kind of this alien, beautiful, non-human world and having been in it so long that it becomes natural then to come back to land is really challenging we we live very busy 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 lives uh full of distraction and i think for a sailor it's that busyness and distraction which can be really jarring and difficult like getting on a six-lane freeway to come home after putting mo in a marina is weird you just like people live this way right. you know it's like what you think of as normal what i now think of as normal is right. you realize that three three-fifths of the planet has no idea about this as your normalcy and we it isn't the world it's just the way we live so that that's really challenging although on the other hand it's been beautiful to be able to have food that's not out of a can or out of a you know dried stuff out of a bag uh, it's beautiful to be able to take a hot shower whenever you want. Uh, I love sleeping in a bed that doesn't move right at sea. I'm awake every 90 minutes. Wow. So, uh, you know, to be able to sleep the whole night through, that's just lovely, but it is, it's been, it's been challenging. I had, a, it just was a beautiful experience being out at sea for that number of days and seeing the world in that way. And, and uh, I, I definitely know I'd like to go back for sure. So what's next? Like, what's what's your next voyage? Uh, uh, voyages, actually. Oh, uh, there uh, it is, plural. <laughs> it, I, w- one thing that has been stated for the short term, at least, is the whole nonstop stuff. I passed by a tremendous amount of really interesting exploration. The islands in the Southern Ocean. Uh, all the islands in the, and, and the archipelago of, above Canada, places that I was speeding by. I had to go as fast as I could for a whole year to, to pull this off in, in 13 months. So I'd love at some point after spending the wife, sorry, after spending the winter home with Joe and my wife and taking care of the, what is a really long honey-do list, rightly so. Right. After kind of restocking that <laughs> relationship capital, I would really love to, uh, to do the kind of, to do a figure eight more slowly and, and see the islands and see the wildlife that, that live there and kind of take in uh, the seasons in those parts of the world. Wow, that's beautiful. And w- one more question here. When you reflect on all of your sailing experiences, not just the figure eight, but all of it, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Yeah, I, I think from myself... it's been interesting to connect the connect that distance between dream and actuality Um, to reflect on the figure eight for a moment. When I had the idea, I didn't even know if it was possible to do that, much less could I do it. And when you first sail, I remember distinctly that first time that I left, to sail across the ocean from Mexico to French Polynesia that first night at sea. I mean, your brain is just going crazy. You do actually think that there are sea monsters that could actually swallow the whole boat because it's all new territory, right? It doesn't matter how many times you've read about sailing across and over the sunset, or sorry, over the horizon into the sunset. When you actually do it for the first time, there's all kinds of fear 
uh, and, and you're just not sure you can do it. It's you know, hugely committing. But then having done it, you, you realize that, yes, you know what, if you can, that it's that realization that, yeah, you, whatever you can dream, you can actually do, given the right, you know, right mindset and right, right time, as it were. For sure. Yeah, it's coming from possibility. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how can my listeners either connect with you, follow you, follow you on social media, or just learn more about your sailing excursions? Hey, thanks for that question. Um, I have a website called randallreeves.live, which kind of summarizes uh, everything that I've done so far briefly. And one can link out from there to the figure eight website, but randallreeves.live is the main site. And then figureeightvoyage.com is another place where I've chronicled everything that I did while I was at sea. Awesome. Well, Randall, this has been awesome. I, I did not know some of the stuff that you had to go through and all the stuff you had to plan for. And this is, uh, you know, I know it's a treat for me, but I know that my listeners are, are, I know they're thrilled listening to this. And I want to thank you for sharing your, your journey, your mindset and your energy. Um, it's really, really awesome what you're doing. And I can't wait to follow you on your next voyages. Hey, thank you. I appreciate uh, the, the, the time and the attention, Grant. It's been a lot of fun. 